0: If you would please turn in your copy of scripture to Colossians chapter 2. We'll be continuing the series in Colossians that we've done sporadically every other couple months. And we're in chapter 2. We'll be finishing it out this week. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can look at the text in the bulletin as well or in one of the Bibles in the, in the seats. Let us then read God's word, God's inerrant Inspired word for us this morning from Colossians chapter 2. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head and rule of all authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead." And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together, through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, And severity to the body but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh thus far word of god living and breathing able to change our hearts this morning let us go to god in prayer and ask his blessing heavenly father we ask that you would teach us by your word this morning that you would use this letter that paul wrote so long ago to the colossian church to teach us more about who we are, who you are, how great a savior we have, and how we must live our lives firmly rooted in Christ and Jesus. Teach us this morning by your spirit, by your word, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Poetry is a wonderful and mysterious gift that God has given man to express some of the most complex ideas of the human uh, experience. It can move the soul and captivate the mind. And as we meditated on this week's passage, Catherine reminded me of a poem by an unknown author that expresses what Paul is saying here in Colossians 2. It goes like this. Oh, you can't get to heaven on roller skates because you'd roll right by those pearly gates. Oh, you can't get to heaven in a rocking chair because a rocking chair won't get you there. Oh, you can't get to heaven in a limousine, because the Lord don't sell no gasoline. Okay, maybe a children's song isn't high poetry. Uh, And sorry for all of those of you who will have that song stuck in your head for the next week. Um, As penance, it's been stuck in our heads for the past week and probably will be this next week as well. But as i thought about those words as i thought about the words of that children's song i realized how much they reflected what paul is trying to teach us here in colossians 2. in this passage paul teaches us that we must guard ourselves against self-made religion even though we've heard we've believed the gospel it's easy for us to turn to empty creations of man instead we must continue to dwell in the full and complete work of Jesus and live out of that gospel. If I can draw out the analogy of that song a little bit further, I think the roller skates, the rocking chair, the limousine are all quite appropriate critiques of our culture and our world today. Maybe the roller skates are a picture of clout or popularity. After all, if you grew up having roller skates, you were a pretty cool kid. Maybe the Rocking chair is a representation of deceiving ourselves that we're good enough. We're good enough for God. God has to let us into heaven. Maybe the limousine is a representation of wealth and power in our world, the pursuit of, uh, of amassing things to ourselves. But God does not value what our world values. God does not value our wealth. We can't buy our way into heaven. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty the seats according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Having been been saved through the gospel of Jesus, how can we pretend to live our lives by the vanities of this world? So as we look at Colossians 2, verses six through 23, we're going to look at it in two points today. First, we need to see, we need to dwell in the gospel. And second, we'll see how dwelling in the gospel delivers us from mere shadows. So first, dwelling in the gospel, and second, deliverance from mere shadows. So first, let's look at how we ought to be dwelling in the gospel. Here in the second chapter of Colossians, Paul begins to instruct the Colossian church on how they ought to live. As we get into the uh, instructions, the details of why Paul is writing them the letter. But as Paul moves into the imperatives of the Christian life, he doesn't immediately move into a list of obligations, of things they ought to be doing. But again, he focuses on the foundation of the gospel. He says in verses 6 and 7: Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul's first instructions to the Colossians in how they ought to be living is to tell them that their lives are to be lived in the same way that they first believed. Just as Paul started this letter, uh, reminding them over and over again of the gospel, that we never move past the gospel. This is the foundation for spiritual change, it's the foundation for day to day life. However, while we may not like to admit it, it's easy for us to create extracurricular activities that we pursue ourselves, that we make these extra things to add to the gospel. Over time, our value and our identity starts to shift from solo Christus to atal, or and other things. But Paul is not satisfied to leave us to wander. In the next couple verses, he shows us the emptiness of these creaturely artifices, or the things that we craft, and the fullness of Christ's work. So to be able to really understand and understand the dwelling of the gospel, We have to see the vanity and the emptiness of our own pursuits. So let's look at the emptiness of our creaturely artifices. First, what is a creaturely artifice? Why would I use such a term? Well, it's that other thing that or things that we add to the gospel. It's those things that we elevate. It's an idol. We could talk about the emptiness of idols, but I think that we're used to that term. We're used to fitting that word idol into a very specific theological box. An idol is bad. I strive very hard not to have any idols. And even Paul didn't call them idols here, even though he lived in a world that was full of idols, even though he was speaking to the Colossians, a people that lived in a city that was known for a vast array of idols. Perhaps idol is too blatant, too obvious. If Paul said to stop making idols, they would say, I don't have any idols, I'm a Christian. But when I strive for excellence, that certainly can't be bad, can it? When I aim to have everything decent and in order, that's good, right? Am I treading dangerously on Presbyterian holy ground? Paul says in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul sets these things as opposites to one another, philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, and elementalism on one hand and Christ on the other hand. And the distinction that he draws here is that philosophy, empty deceit, human tradition, and this elementalism are inadequate foundations and they're inadequate goals. Only Christ and Christ only is worthy of defining and shaping our lives. Only Christ and Christ only is worthy of defining and shaping our lives. To understand Paul's point further, It may be helpful to understand the culture that surrounded this church, the Colossian church, and how in many ways it looks a lot like our own. Philosophy and tradition were two pillars of civilization, and the third was religion, a very popular one, a very important one. This word that Paul uses here could be translated elemental spirits or elemental principles. Not quite sure what exactly the meaning there. Paul could have spiritual beings in mind, such as all these pagan deities, these idols that were worshiped in the culture. But he also could be uh, referring to more inanimate, but still religious principles of life, or these things of life that you have to pursue in order to be successful. Scholars are mixed on what this phrase means in the passage, but as I thought through it, as I considered what the meaning and what it implies, it really amounts to the same issue in the end. Whether you have some kind of pagan deity that you feel controls your life, or you believe that your future is determined by how well you manipulate the natural world around you, the result is the same. In the end, you will always be looking for ways to appease and improve your chances in life, regardless of that is a higher power, something you're appealing to, uh, or if that is something impersonal, something in our natural world. Philosophy, empty deceit, and human tradition likewise have the tendency to captivate, to pull our attention away from Christ, cause us to lose sight of the gospel. This is a challenging issue for all of us. I would guess that if I had a conversation with any of you this morning, you would be able to s- describe your need For Christ to be completely reliant on Christ we know that the gospel is the only way that we can get to God we know that there's nothing that we could do to add to what Jesus has done and we know that all of our work is but dirty rags and yet maybe if I try just a little harder maybe if I keep this lust in my heart hidden it really won't affect my life Maybe if I just make myself look good in my boss's eyes, I won't have to rely so much on God's provision because I'll get that raise that I need to feel comfortable. If I have everything put together on the outside, people will think well of me. But soon the empty lies grow. They start to say, if I just look this one time or again and again, I surely won't get caught. If I micromanage my employee, I'll feel better and more secure about myself. If I am criticized by anyone, they're the toxic one. They're the problem and I should cut them out of my life. These are lies that are easy for us to start to believe over time. They creep in, they divert our attention away from the gospel. Like us, the Colossians were inundated with subtle and deceptive ideas that tempted them to turn away from the sufficiency of Christ and seek after man-made idols. Whether you're seeking to appease some spiritual force, natural force, or the gnawing insufficiency in your own soul, all of your efforts are a sacrifice to an object that is not worthy of the worship you are giving it. Speaking of empty creations of man, The movie Barbie opened up two weeks ago in theaters. So far, it's the highest-grossing film on opening weekend this year. While I haven't seen it, from what I've heard, I probably wouldn't recommend it either. Uh, There has been a good bit of buzz on social media about this film and about the messages that it says. In the movie, uh, one of these main uh, ideas, one of these main thoughts is about empowerment, the strange empowerment that you're supposed to have. When Barbie is receiving an award, she doesn't thank those who have helped her along the way, but instead she says, I worked really hard for this and I deserve it. It's amazing to see the reactions to that on Twitter, social media. It's the reaction of, yeah, I needed that message. That's true. I need to believe that about myself. The message is clear. You're the only one who can ensure your success. The world will tell you that you should throw all of your energy into promoting yourself for washing your back, for getting ahead. You may be able to spot the flaw in the logic, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, we can all pinpoint an area in our lives that we would like to believe the lie. No matter what the promise is, however, the idol can't deliver the philosophies and traditions and self-made religion are all ultimately empty pursuits. So is it wrong to strive for excellence? No, as long as that desire is driven from an even deeper sense of mercy founded in the gospel. Is it wrong to be orderly and peaceable? No, those are truly good reflections of God's character but they must always be tempered by the kind of self-sacrificial love that Christ has shown us. Without daily dependence in the gospel, these things are poor and artificial substitutes. We must no longer be taken captive by these empty lies, but must find our fullness in the fullness of Christ. That leads us to the fullness of Christ's work. So Paul reminds the Colossians again of what Christ Jesus has done for them. How many, how many times has Paul reminded the Colossians of the gospel? But again, he says in verses 9 through 15, For in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Wow, what a lot of gospel gold packed into that section. Paul's told them before, even in Colossians, the first chapter is packed full of the gospel. And he goes again back to the gospel reminding them of what Jesus has done for them. This is also one of those key verses, passages, about how the sign of circumcision and the sign of uh, baptism are connected. However, Paul's focus here is not to write a systematic theology, but rather to show the Colossian church how great a gospel and how complete the work of their Messiah, Jesus, is. Similar to chapter 1, verses 15 and following, Paul highlights The exalted nature of Christ. In him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Seriously? Literally it says, for in him dwells all the fullness of deity bodily. For all you mathematicians out there, what is the sum total of infinity? And how do you fit that infinity into a singular man? It's astounding. It's a mystery. And I'm sure that if it wasn't explicitly written in Scripture, we wouldn't believe it. It would be too great to believe. But he says all of the abundance of this infinite God dwells in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is enough to both exalt Christ and to show us how weak and needy we are. If that weren't enough, Paul goes on to say, and you have been filled in him, who is the head and rule of all authority. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you? It exalts us beyond understanding and humbles us below anything that this world could do to us. It exalts us because God has seen fit to dwell in us. He doesn't despise the lowliness of his creatures, but instead lifts them up and dwells in us. And if Jesus dwells in us, we can be certain that no struggle, no pain, no sickness or weakness or weariness, is there by accident. God knows you. He knows the frustrations with work. He knows the struggles with sin. He knows your sickness and the pain that seem to be woven into your very DNA. And yet, this powerful God who can create with a word has chosen to work in you, sanctifying you with every struggle and with every breath. God is the great conservationist. There is nothing wasted in God's economy. That's what it means. The fullness of God, the fullness of deity dwells in him and he in you. How can we then not throw ourselves at his feet in worship? Who am I? that this great God would be mindful of me and so deeply merciful to me. Next, Paul says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in flesh, by the uh, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Who are we? That's what this is talking about. Who are you? We are right now raised from death. While our bodies will fall, our souls are already raised to life. We are no longer bound by a spiritual death, but are alive in Christ. I mentioned that this passage is a significant passage on baptism. It shows us just what baptism signifies and proclaims. We are guilty, we are dead. And yet, verses 13 and 14, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Our debts were nailed to Jesus' cross. And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Paul says here that God disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. We might struggle with what that looks like. How does that that play out in our lives? But we have actually a clear picture of what that looks like in its most grandest scale, In Zechariah chapter three, all the way back before Jesus had even come, God gave his people this picture. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments and the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments away from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. Isn't it amazing that the prince of shame is standing there ready to throw the book at Joshua. But God removes Joshua's shame and casts it back at Satan. The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. God has taken our filthy record, our record of debt, and has nailed it to Jesus's cross. Where then is your shame? Satan has nothing to hold over your head because God has put your record over Jesus's head. has given you a forgiveness that can never be removed that's why we have to live in the gospel why we have to dwell in the gospel our world is full of philosophies of ideas of lies they're all drowning in shame but in Christ you are free that leads us to our final point this morning deliverance from mere shadow This one's shorter just in case you're wondering So now that we have seen the importance of living in the gospel and in Christ alone let's look at some of the ways that change that uh, that that reality changes our lives We see in verses 16 through 23 deliverance from mere shadow Paul says in verses 16 and 17, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Although we don't know the specifics of what the Colossian church was dealing with, it's clear by these verses and and the previous context in the chapter that the Colossians were struggling with knowing how to practice their faith. Some teachers were telling them that they had to observe feasts and practices to really be Christians. Others were telling them that they needed to suffer more in order to make sure that they were really in Christ. Still others said that they had to worship angels. But these practices are hollow. Again, the reality of our identity is already accomplished in Christ. We cannot add anything to our standing with God. Now, Paul isn't saying just to abandon all, all morals and live with anarchy. That wouldn't be a, a proper understanding of what exactly Paul is addressing here, the, the, uh, the, the problems in the culture, in the church. But Paul says in verse 18, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worshiping angels, going in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Paul is talking about these Practices that were being taught in the church. Again, the problem is the tendency to create additional requirements for the Christian life in order to be truly in. You can see that Paul contrasts this asceticism and worship of angels with, which uh, probably had to do with the angels that helped deliver the law in the Old Testament with Christ. Contrasting those things with true spiritual growth in Christ what the false teachers were saying was that if you wanted to truly grow and truly be spiritual you had to start adding all these extra little things in fact you weren't really much of a Christian at all if you didn't observe all of the extra rules again the idea was that spiritual growth comes from tradition from philosophy from appeasing the elemental spirits or principles but we already know that Christ has fulfilled all that we need. We know that we are raised to life with him already. There is nothing that we could do to change that or to make it better. Paul is saying, why are you reaching for the shadow puppets on the wall when you have the real thing already? God has already given you the real thing. Our spiritual growth is based in what Jesus has done for you not in our own work. Paul makes this clear in verse 19 where he contrasts these extra regulations to where we find true hope, holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Christian, hold fast to Jesus. The gospel that we've been talking about isn't A list of things to memorize or things to believe the gospel is at its core a person it's jesus it's a personal relationship with our lord our savior our brother and our friend in him all the fullness of deity dwells and we must hold fast to him If you don't know Jesus this way, if you're sitting here this morning, you're still wondering, still contemplating if this is what you need to believe, first, thank you for being here. This is the best place for you to be right now, because this is the fundamental issue in your life. Take some time now, later today, this week. And really consider what Paul is saying about Jesus here in this letter to the Colossians. If this is really real, if Jesus is this amazing person, then you must believe in him. Christian brothers and sisters, let us hold fast to the Savior and God. Let us be nourished and knit together as God's body. Let us cry out to God to grow us as a body through our daily walking with him and knowing him. Paul continues in verses 20 through 22. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Again, our life and our growth are founded in this new life in Christ. Paul says that we have died to the elemental spirits of this world, that our whole being, belongs now to a new and blessed reality. Would we not think it absurd to watch a man rescue a poor, a malnourished puppy on the side of the road when he's brought it back to his home and bought it a bed and good nourishing food to then see him chastise the dog for eating the good food and sleeping in the warm bed? That is what the religious teachers were doing to the church. They were imposing more regulations, more rules, human focused precepts and teachings on the church. These were not to benefit and grow the church in Christ, but rather to burden and crush the church. This phrase, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, probably refers to the asceticism or the depriving oneself of basic needs so as to display some kind of religious devotion. But Paul says, look, all these things have passed away. Our bodies may be nourished by perishable things, but they aren't where you receive the important growth. You can consume or restrict the use of these things, but the real growth comes through dwelling and living out of the gospel. If we live in Christ, then the shadows will not be so important to us. The race, though we run it, is not the ultimate goal. It is God who plants us deep in Christ and builds us up in Him, and has firmly established our faith. It is left to us to dwell there, and to be thankful. Don't skip over that part. Out of the four verbs in uh, in verse seven, only one of them is active. Verse seven: there, rooted, built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught. That last one, abounding in thanksgiving, that's an active verb. The others are passive. The others are what God has done for us. Abound in thanksgiving. I promise you that if you wake up each day thanking God for something he has done for you, and you go to bed each night in thanksgiving to what God has done for you, it will have no little effect. A thankful heart is powerful. I want to conclude with what Paul says at the end of this section. I think he leaves us with something important to think about. Verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What is Paul saying here? All the philosophies, empty lies, traditions, elemental spirits, angel worship, asceticism, regulations, they all lead to the same place. They all may mask the brokenness, but they can't heal it. What is the hope for stopping the indulgence of flesh? If man-made rules don't get the job done, what will? Remember, who is working in you? Is it not our God who has made the fullness of deity dwell in man and that man in our hearts? He has put to death our obligation to human wisdom and has given us divine wisdom that cannot fail. He is working in your heart even now to make you more like him, to make you more holy. Human rules cannot stop the indulgence of the flesh, but Jesus can. Only Jesus And cancel our debt because only Jesus can pay for it. Jesus can change your heart and will change your heart day by day as you dwell in the gospel. So it is to us to live in the gospel, to dwell in the gospel every day. It is our food and our drink, it is our rest and our work, it is what makes sense of all the pieces of our weary lives no matter how many how broken those pieces may be. It is to us to dwell in the gospel and to give thanks to God. We did not deserve this. We did not earn this. It is a gift of God, the only truly satisfying hope for the human soul. Would you join me in prayer? Oh God, satisfy our souls in you. We ask that you would Build us up in the gospel that you would cause us to dwell day by day, moment by moment in what you have done in Christ on our behalf. God, we struggle. It is hard for us to keep our eyes focused on Christ, to keep our relationship vibrant and strong. Help us, O oh Father, help us who are weak and needy. Draw us close to you and grow in us a desire and a love and an adoration and a fear for our God and our Savior. God, be with us as we face the many lies, the philosophies, the uh, the idols of our culture. Help us to recognize them and help us to weed them out of our lives knowing that it is not us who has created a new heart, but we are new in Christ. Help us to live in that this morning, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.